0: so we've been studying this excuse me very simple phrase recorded in the dhammapada number 183 says something like refraining from what is unwholesome engaging in what is wholesome purifying the mind these are the teachings of all the buddhas So yesterday, or the last couple nights, I, I mentioned sort of challenging all of us. Are we interested in learning and abandoning the actual causes of unhappiness? So assuming that there are actual causes, actions, ways of being that lead to unhappiness, are we interested in that, interested in doing what we can to abandon it? And then the other question is, are we interested in learning and setting in motion the actual causes for happiness? Are we willing to put some time into that? And of course, when when we put it this way, of course the answer is yes. I mean, like I mentioned yesterday, we're all working hard in our own ways to be happy. So if we thought there were actual causes for unhappiness and actual causes for happiness, we'd be pretty dedicated. We'd be personally invested. And so this is, you know, this personal investment in karma, we could say, is like our entrance to the path. we're, We're no longer believing this thought of being a helpless human being thrown around by random forces. And we somehow have a sense that, what this mind is doing, how it's relating, what it's indulging in, has something to do with how things turn out for me. So again, this is a very personal, we're still on a very personal level of wanting to take care of ourselves and somehow feeling responsible, becoming a reflective human being, and even though This teaching was given, this particular teaching of the Buddha was given to a young boy, um, the Buddha's son, Rahula, when he was a novice monk, seven or eight or nine years of age. Um, It's very useful for us, and it's basically um, inviting Rahula to take up this responsibility. He starts off this teaching for his son by talking about the importance of truthfulness. Even in jest, I tell you, you should never tell a lie. And then he goes on, he asks Rahula, his son, what is a mirror for? And Rahula answers, for reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, verbal action, mental action, you should reflect on it. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both? Would it be an unskillful action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it would be an unskillful action with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily or verbal or mental action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any action of that sort is fit for you to do. And it's not just uh, before you do uh, bodily, verbal, or mental action. Also, the Buddha says the same thing for while you're doing one of these three kinds of actions. And not only while you're doing it, after you've done it. And I'll just read the last one. So having done a mental action, a verbal action, a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This mental action, this verbal, this bodily action I have done, did it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or both? Was it unskillful? Did it lead to painful consequences, painful results? He goes on. He says, if it was skillful, with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night and skillful mental states, bodily states states, right? So that if what we're doing is skillful, it's okay to reap the benefits of that. And then the Buddha ends this little teaching for his son Rahula by saying, if you consider any wise people in the past, the present, or future, they all will have done this. There's no way, in other words, to become wise without reflecting on our bodily, verbal, Mental actions before we do them, while we're doing them, after we're doing them. And of course, Rahula was delighted to receive this teaching. And we're probably feeling a little, you know, overwhelmed, like our mindfulness practice isn't really up to the grade. And it's just an interesting place for us. On the one hand, we really want to hear the truth that practice demands this amazing continuity. And on the other, if all that does, that information does, is make us give up, well, I can't do that. I'm just too distracted, or I just don't have that kind of motivation, or I don't have enough faith, or something like that. You know, if that's uh, our alternative, then we're in a bad place. We have to somehow be willing just take one step in the direction of that kind of continuity just one step like Joseph Goldstein my teacher would often say you know you may not be able to be mindful of your breath for an hour but I bet you can be mindful of one in breath or one out breath and don't think beyond that just be mindful of that next in breath and feel that simple appropriate satisfaction of having been mindful for a half breath and then the next half breath. Do your best with that, step by step like that. We have this, um, this handout I gave you on the paramis. Um, on the back side, Steve Armstrong, some of you know, a wonderful teacher and somebody who teaches here in Minnesota once a year. He took these 10 perfections of heart, these beautiful qualities of heart, and he talked about each of the 10 in terms of letting go. So these qualities, they include generosity, integrity, or morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. And You have this handout. I just want to mention the one on wisdom, because this really speaks to this um, attitude we sometimes have about uh, the continuity of mindfulness and how challenging it is to take up this this path of mindfulness. Steve says, the willful, he's defining wisdom, letting go of the willful naivete, delusion, and the ignorance of, I'd rather not know. It's That's how we are a lot in our experience. It's like, We'd rather not know the way that it is right now. We prefer the not knowing. That's literally the definition of ignorance in a a Buddhist sense. It's this desire to not know, a willingness to not know. Assuming that there's no harm that comes in not knowing. How could it harm me? I don't know about it. And we don't realize the tremendous consequences or what gets set in motion because of our not knowing. So there's a real paradigm shift, you know, and you could think about it in terms of allegiances in, and this allegiance to uh, mindfulness, to a direct and independent presence in our life, independent in the sense that it's knowing for its own sake. There's a wonderful discourse. The Buddha visited the people Kalamas. I don't know if it was a village or a clan or something. And they said to uh, the Buddha when he arrived, Venerable Sir, there are some priests and contemplatives who come here. They expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, disparage them. And then other contemplatives come. And they expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, disparage them. They leave us simply uncertain and doubtful. Which of these venerable contemplatives are speaking the truth? Which ones are lying? And the Buddha responded, of course you are uncertain. Of course you are doubtful. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, don't go by reports, by legends, or by tradition, or by scriptures, conjecture, inferences, analogies, by agreement um, to your views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, These qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to harm, to suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he gives this example. When greed arises in a person, does it arise for welfare or for harm? For harm, venerable sir. And this greedy person, overcome by greed, one's mind possessed by greed, doesn't this person kill living beings, take what is not given, go after another person's partner, tell lies, and induce others to do likewise, all of which is for long-term harm and suffering? Yes, sir. And then he says, he goes through the same with aversion and and delusion. So what do you think? Are these qualities skillful or unskillful? Unskillful. Blameworthy or blameless? Blameworthy. Criticized by the wise or praised by the wise? Criticized by the wise. When undertaken and carried out, do they lead to harm, to suffering, or not? And they said, yes, they lead to harm. And then he does the same with positive qualities, you know, non-greed or generosity, non-aversion or kindness, non-delusion or wisdom, and you know, just in the opposite way. And this is a often repeated sutta because, you know, especially in the West, we sort of like it, the Buddhists telling us to rely on our own judgment, our own wisdom, which you know makes a lot of sense. This practice is all about self-reliance, but. This self-reliance depends on mindfulness. It's the only thing that gives us a barometer or a a rudder in this world. Otherwise, we're literally pushed around by the mind's conditioning. Joseph Goldstein begins this chapter 7, Purifying the Mind, with a quote from Rumi. Which one is more, a crowd of thousands or your genuine solitude? freedom? or the power over an entire nation. A little while alone in your room will prove more valuable than anything else that could ever be given you. In this chapter, Joseph Goldstein talks about how he, uh, this, this fortuitous set of circumstances, ended up with his teacher who he spent much of seven years, practicing in Bodhgaya, uh, where Manindaji, who had just recently returned from nine years of practice and study in Burma. He's an Indian man, but he had been, a, I think, a civil servant in Burma, and then got interested in meditation and basically moved in for a while and studied with uh, Mahasusayada, a famous Burmese teacher. Um, and then uh, studied there for nine years and then returned to India and took over the Burmese Bahara in Bodhgaya, which is the place of the Buddhist enlightenment. And the Bahara was just a place for Burmese pilgrims to stay when they went to that pilgrimage site. But at the time, there weren't that many Burmese allowed out of the country. So a lot of Westerners uh, back in the mid-'60s started to take up residence there, including Joseph Goldstein and several others that later then became Western Dharma teachers. Anyway, Joseph mentions that entering and he had been sort of messing around with Buddhism. He had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, spent some time there studying Buddhism, but hadn't really dug in, dug in, but was really wanting to dig in somewhere. And Through this sort of force beyond his understanding, he ended up at this Vihara with Menindadri, his teacher. And one of the first days uh, he was there, he, he sat down and asked the group of Westerners You know, what are you interested in? Why do you want to practice? And Joseph said, for liberation. And then Manindraji, I'll just read, he he then went on to say something that sealed my decision to stay in practice for as long as I could. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. It was this clear, common sense, undogmatic approach that so inspired me. There is nothing to join, no rituals to observe, no beliefs to follow. The mysteries of the mind would reveal themselves simply through the power of my own growing awareness. And that's really the the faith. It's really an insight, and then the faith that arises from that insight that we have this potential tool. We have this capacity to be mindful. Initially, we don't even know what that means. It's, it's kind of fumbling. We have moments. But we don't really understand its value. It's like uh, you know, some great jewel that's been covered in mud. Evidently, there's one of the bigger um, Buddhas. I think it was in Burma, but it might have been in Thailand. Um, and during the wars that often went on between Burma and Thailand, s- several century, many centuries ago, they covered the, this big statue with gold leaf. They covered it in mud, and, or plaster, or something. And uh, and then somehow, you know how it goes, people forgot about it. And uh, centuries later, you know they were repatching the plaster and kind of saw through the cracks something. Golden and shiny, and uncovered it to realize, you know, that it was this beautiful golden statue of the Buddha. And it's a little like that with mindfulness. It just seems so ordinary. Seems, you know, well, and also it seems like we're already mindful. It doesn't occur to us to sort of, you know, pick it up, dust it off, develop it, really set it in motion. And if you talk, especially Asian teachers they often talk about practice, you know, in terms of momentum and the importance of momentum and how difficult practice is until the mindfulness has enough momentum. And you can think of this in terms of, uh, you know, metal work. When the metal is cold and brittle, there's not too much you can do with it. If you start heating it up, you can pretty much do what you want with it. And it's like that with the mind. You know, when our mindfulness isn't very strong, it's sluggish. You know, we're sort of always a little bit behind, and the mindfulness is always under the influence of the emotions that are dominating at the time. But once mindfulness develops a head steam, it's like nothing fools it. Nothing confuses it. It's just something being known. It's just this being known. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. First, I want to read this poem, really from one of Joseph's Tibetan teachers, Ken Rinpoche, a well-known teacher in the West, a Tibetan teacher in the West who died maybe 15 or so years ago. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mind Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overwhelm you to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is, a creature, is the creature of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Lack of mindfulness piles up lots of shit. Without mindfulness, you sleep in an ocean of piss. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, walking, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, Please be mindful. <laughs> <laughs> kind of gets our attention. <laughs> Guy Armstrong, some of you know, wonderful teacher from Spirit Rock and also teaches at IMS. He uh, was visiting um, Nepal where no Ken Rinpoche was. And uh, he tells this wonderful story of he, he, uh, Sharon, I think. No Ken Rinpoche was also one of Sharon's teachers. And Sharon had asked Guy to bring some dana, some money to give to her teacher, because he knew she knew he was visiting. And so he had this uh, audience with No Ken Rinpoche, gave the, the dana. And the way Guy describes it is that he just entered into a very pure state of awareness, mindfulness, sort of uh, a more purified mindfulness than we often would experience. And uh, guy was so overwhelmed and confused by this experience. It's just like he couldn't relax with it, open to it. It was like this priceless thing was there for the taking and uh, being caught in a state of fear. You guys heard him describe it recently in his talk. I heard, and that's to think about mindfulness. It's it uh, it is the most powerful thing in the world. It's like they say how water is the universal solvent, and you look at something like the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's just so impressive. So in a material realm, you know, maybe water is the universal solvent, but in the ultimate realm, mindfulness is the universal solvent. It's it's what really opens up everything. Nothing can withstand mindfulness. Nothing uh, is more powerful than mindfulness. And to have that sense, like to be willing to consider that possibility, that would be a good thing for all of us. We used to have up on our bulletin board, some of you old timers will remember for a long time, for at least a couple of years, maybe even longer, at the old building, this quote. And I don't even remember where I found it originally. But it said, I don't know who said it either. We can spend the rest of our lives being miserable or the rest of our lives becoming wise. Both require equal effort. <laughs> and it does take a lot to set mindfulness in motion. But it takes a lot of work to not set mindfulness in motion. You know, it's like avoiding being mindful is also a lot of work. It just seems easier in a way because it's not directed. You know, it's random. We're sort of worrying about this and then planning that and then complaining and then blaming and all of which is a lot of work. But because we're moving around it never seems to add up, it never seems like we're working really hard. But when we look back and we think about what we've done with our life, you know how many times we've just been sort of bumping around, walking, tripping over ourselves, it makes sense that maybe we'd want to be a little bit more systematic. I still get really inspired. I mean, I feel like such a beginner in this way. Um, But I have real faith in mindfulness. and and really wanting to keep putting the time in. You know, just sitting every day is an example of that. Even if our sits are what we imagine are totally worthless. If all our sit is doing is helping us remember our respect for mindfulness, like we're not actually cultivating mindfulness in our sits. But just the ritual itself is reminding us that it's of real value in my life, and I don't want to forget it. I think that's worth it. I think it's worth spending an hour a day, even if you're not cultivating mindfulness, but you're just remembering its value. I thought I'd read <laughs> just how uh, these lines of intimidating us. Uh, from Mahasi Saida, who's this wonderful, powerful teacher, and a little intimidating, evidently. I never met him. Uh, But I remember Michelle McDonald-Smith telling when he visited IMS back in, I think it was like 79 or something like that, 1979, and maybe one of his few trips to the West. And he was an older man at that time. And she talks about how. They walked out of the airplane. You know, those were the days we could actually go to the gate and walking out mindfully with his attendants behind him, including Saida Ujanaka, who, when and I have studied with in Burma, and other famous, now famous Burmese teachers, who were sort of part of his entourage at the time, walking out mindful, doing everything mindfully, slowly, and uh, it's like. This is what often gives Vipassana practice, you know, this reputation of people being zombies or the Walking Dead, because, you know, and even you'll see, and if I get that far, you know, he, he talks about that you should move as if you're very old or very sick, so that you're not just casually throwing your weight around, moving your body around, but it's as if you're 95 years old. So that you're really like a 94 or 95 year old person getting up off of the floor. You know, if you ever see that, they have to be really thoughtful, really mindful, everything they do, because their body's not working so well. And in that way, uh, we can be mindful, not forgetful. And that's a nice way to think about mindfulness is not forgetting. Like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, our only. True enemy is forgetfulness, and that's really nice, you know, to eliminate thoughts of the devil, you know, the great demons, and, and to realize there's really only one demon, which is forgetfulness, getting lost in our mental projections or thoughts. So here's some basic instruction that Saida, Mahasi Sayadaw um, gave at the beginning of one of the Vipassana retreats. The practice of vipassana or insight meditation is the effort made by the meditator to understand correctly the nature of the psychophysical phenomena taking place in one's body. Physical phenomena are things or objects which one clearly perceives around one. The whole of one's body that, that one clearly perceives constitute a group of material qualities. Psychical or mental phenomena are acts of consciousness or awareness. These mind bodies, mind and bodies are clearly perceived to be happening whenever they are seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched, or thought of. We must make ourselves aware of them by observing them and noting thus. Seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing, smelling, smelling, tasting, tasting, touching, touching, thinking, thinking. Every time one sees, hears, smells, tastes, touches, or thinks, one should make a note of that fact. So this is the distinguishing characteristic of about the way Saida would have people train. And sometimes this technique is called mental noting for this reason, because he's asking people to mentally note in a soft, relaxed way, but a continuous way, whatever object of awareness, whatever it is, to note it as best you can. One should therefore begin with noting these happenings, which are conspicuous and easily perceivable. With every act of breathing, the abdomen arises and falls, which, which which movement is always evident. This is the material quality known as the element of motion. One should begin by noting this movement, which may be done by the mind intently observing the abdomen. You will find the abdomen rising when you breathe in, falling when you breathe out. The rising should be noted mentally as rising. The falling should be noted falling. If the movement is not evident, by just noting it mentally, keep touching the abdomen with your palm. Do not alter the manner of your breathing. Neither slow it down nor make it fast. Do not breathe too vigorously either. You will tire if you change the manner of your breathing. Breathe steadily as usual and note the rising and falling of the abdomen. As they occur, note it mentally, not verbally. In Vipassana meditation, what you name or say doesn't matter. What really matters is to know or perceive. (coughs) While noting the rising of the abdomen, do so from the beginning to the end of the movement, just as if you were seeing it with your eyes. Do the same with the falling movement. Note the rising movement in such a way that your awareness is concurrent with the movement itself. The movement and the mental awareness of it should coincide in the same way as a stone thrown hits the target, similarly with the falling movement. Your mind may wander elsewhere while you're noting the abdominal movement. This must also be noted by mentally saying, wandering, wandering. When this has been noted once or twice, the mind stops wandering, in which case, you go back to noting the rising and falling of the abdomen. If the mind reaches somewhere, such as reaching, reaching, note note as reaching, reaching, then go back to the rising and falling of the abdomen. If you imagine meeting somebody, note as meeting, meeting, then back to the rising and falling. If you imagine meeting and talking to someone, note as talking, talking. In short, Whatever thought or reflection occurs should be noted. If you imagine, note as imagining. If you think, thinking. If you plan, planning. If you perceive, perceiving. If you reflect, reflecting. If you feel happy, happy. If you feel bored, note bored. If you feel glad, note glad. If you feel disheartened, disheartened. Noting all these acts of consciousness is called citta upasana, or mindfulness of mind. And he goes on, and in detail you wouldn't believe, so that you basically have no excuse not to be noting. First of all, he says it doesn't really matter what you know. What matters is that you're connecting with the predominant experience in the moment. Now, whether you're ever going to do the formal mental noting practice, this is what we're being asked to do. Not the mental noting, but the continuity of mindfulness. It's possible, like even as I'm talking, it's possible to note, to notice, to be aware of the timbre of my voice or the kind of gesture of my hands or the wind from the blower against my cheek or the visual experience that's in front of me. All of these things are already being known. It's just a question of whether the mind is remembering that this is being known. Are we mindful or not, or are we somehow caught up in some interpretation and then therefore blinded by the other predominant experiences. And this is the thing about thinking, or concepts generally, is that it masquerades, the content of our thoughts masquerades as reality. So we get in the habit, this is what a normal ignorant human being does, we're in the habit of taking our conceptual interpretation as reality. And we become less and less interested and less and less able to directly see things, know things, in terms of touching, seeing, smelling, tasting, thinking. Thinking as thinking, not the content of the thought, but knowing that it's thinking that's happening. Thinking is being known. And of course, there's tremendous freedom in this uh, this uh, development of mindfulness, when it builds a head of steam. Because what that, what that commitment to mindfulness does is it creates cracks in the dukkha that our thoughts project onto our life. The suffering, the stress, the burden, the weight that we experience in life. In this, maybe you need to take as just a, um, a hi- hypothesis initially, but the suffering we experience in life is a mental projection, a seductive mental projection. And so, what mindfulness does is it creates cracks in that in the completeness of the mental projection; it begins to fall apart. Are any of you? I know some of you are the meta male. This is a Community group that Kevin Freiberg started uh, via the internet, and people on an email list just share their practice reflections with each other um, a couple times a week usually. Anybody could join. There's the emails up on the bulletin board, and you just you know people randomly decide to share a little bit about their practice to the whole email list. I think there's like a hundred people in the community now on it or something like that. But recently, <coughs> one of our um, regular community members, Mike, sent out an email. He talked about getting disturbed by this greater sensitivity he was starting to experience in his practice, and feeling like he was going backwards in his practice, that you know, instead of being less neurotic, he was becoming more and more neurotic, because he was seeing so much more. And then he came across this teaching You know, which is very common. It was from one of my talks, but it's kind of teaching you hear from everyone, all teachers. And you could probably tell your friends the same teaching. And it was the the basic teaching that knowing that the mind is worrying is not the same as just being caught in worry. Or knowing that there's hating going on is not the same as hating. Being mindful that there's hatred happening is not the same as just being a hateful person. And getting that distinction, like that it's we should be grateful to start seeing what's happening. At first, it's like we don't really want to know. Like that quote I read from Steve Armstrong, we prefer the ignorance of not knowing. We don't really want to know what's going on. Because initially, it feels painful to see it. Because as we become mindful, one of the first things we become mindful of are all of the consequences of being attached, all the consequences of being caught up in different ways, reactive in different ways. We feel the body more intimately, and we feel the body is basically the repository of all the mental tension that has been played out during the day, or weeks, and years, and maybe lifetimes. And so when we're mindful, we feel that and we feel like, God, why would anybody want to do this practice? But if we just stick with it, the mindfulness also begins to reveal the cause of all that tension and how unnecessary that cause is, how diluted it is, how, yeah, just uh, like a house of cards, something that can fall apart relatively easily when it seems. And so we can start to feel empowered when we start to notice the different patterns. Because once we notice them, it, there's a possibility of them falling apart like a house of cards. Once we notice we're in a fit with a moment of mindfulness that reveals, oh, the mind is in a complete fit right now, and it's like this. Then it's possible for that fit to lose all of its supporting causes and literally disappear, or at least fall apart slowly but if we don't see it being in a fit has the tendency to replicate itself to strengthen itself because it's so painful being in a fit and because we feel that pain on some level we must feel uh, so justified in being in a fit because I hurt so much it's probably appropriate that I'm in a fit why else would I be hurting you know, it's like, I should get upset, I should be reactive, because something intense is going on, because I hurt so much, and so we get reactive, and we hurt more, and we feel more compelled to be in a fit, because the pain blinds the mind, and we keep digging in, you know, in just so many different ways, we keep digging in. But it isn't that we just end at that place, you know, where mindfulness, being mindful of our, you know, mindful of the different bad habits of mind, allows for some cracks and some release. But at some point, uh, a deeper insight, it's like the mind, a revolution in the mind. And you can think of it this way. Moments of mindfulness, and it doesn't matter what we're mindful of, but just seeing things as they are, seeing things as physical, mental events that come and go due to causes and conditions. Seeing the conditional, lawful, natural unfolding of things. Every time we see that, it's like money in the bank, money in the bank, money in the bank, money in the bank. And eventually, there's enough money in the bank, and we buy an insight, or an insight is bought. And that's really how it works. Or you can you know, use whatever image you want. You know, you're striking a stone, striking a stone, striking a stone, striking a stone. Maybe it takes 999 hits. But eventually, it cracks and it opens up. It, we're collecting data. Every moment of mindfulness, a real moment of mindfulness, it's like the mind understands it's like this. It understands things in a non-conceptual way. We say sometimes, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, in and of themselves. We see things in and of themselves, not in terms of our story or interpretation of the object, but in and of itself. And that little bit of information, that little bit of data, it adds up. And eventually the raw data, the raw truth of the way it is, overwhelms wrong view or our history of misperceptions or ideas about things. But we never know when that's going to happen. You know, and there's all these stories about sort of the funny places where it happens. Like Ananda's, that famous story of Ananda, who had some insight, but not full insight. And uh, after the time of the Buddha's death, they were all going to gather together and uh, kind of organize the teachings of the Buddha before people forgot them. And they needed Ananda to be there because he had this great memory, and he had been the Buddha's attendant for more than 20 years, but he couldn't be there because he wasn't a fully awakened person yet, and they only were allowing fully awakened people at the meeting. And so he was doing walking meditation until late of the night, and uh, you know, probably pushing a little too hard. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, fully enlightened. You know. <laughs> Four hours left, three hours left. So finally he got that his mind was out of balance, and he thought, I'll practice lying down. And there he was, not even quite in the lying down position, but just being mindful from the standing to the lying down. And he, it was the last bit of information that was needed for the mind to have that revolution, where it really threw off wrong view once and for all. The, the momentum of the raw, truthful data overwhelmed any possibility of taking things personally anymore, which is what we call wrong view. And so that's why we have to have, uh, initially, we need a lot of inspired faith to do the work. Because it doesn't feel like much is happening. I mean, you know what that's like, just to be aware of one more in-breath, one more out-breath, lifting, moving, placing with the steps. And it feels like, if we're lucky, we get a little calm, and that's it. And it doesn't seem like much of a reward for this work. And especially when you've been at it for a while, because You've read the stories, and you hear about other people. In this book, uh, Joseph Goldstein tells his story of uh, in his early years. And he was just sort of just beginning to practice, not really systematically at all, just kind of playing around a little bit and studying. Um, And he was a philosophy major. So he was really interested in the teachings um, while he was in Thailand, but hadn't really started a systematic practice. But one day, somebody was just reading a Tibetan text about the unborn. And he was just listening. He was just kicked back, listening to this guy reading from this Tibetan text. And his mind just opened right just right at the beginning of his practice and had a, an insight into the unconditioned. And uh, so we never know when these things, these insights, are going to arise, like how much more push the mind needs to see things that it's currently not seeing, to kind of go beyond or ordinary, self-organized reality. But we can see, even in the very beginning, we can see that uh, mindfulness makes a lot of sense. It's like it makes sense to us intellectually. It makes sense that we would want to be mindful, that we would want to see things in and of themselves. It makes sense we'd want to do this continuously. like. When would it be unskillful or not useful to be mindful? How could it be harmful? What thing do I, that I care about would it be harmful for? Like, would it make me a worse cook, uh, a, a not such a good friend? No. When, when we really check it out, we realize, no, it's, mindfulness is good in all things. We have every reason, from the most mundane reasons, to the most spiritual reasons, to be devoted to mindfulness, this purification of the heart. Let's see, maybe I'll just share one more thing. Some of you have heard this sutta before, but... It's really nice, concise teaching from the Buddha. And we can end here and then open it up for discussion. This is uh, Andy Olensky translates the title as The Thorn in Your Heart. Fear, and this is the Buddha speaking. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. It's sort of amazing, the Buddha talking about shaking all over seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart, It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. Who here has crossed over desires? The world's bond so hard to get past. One does not grieve. One does not mourn. One stream is cut. One is all unbound. What went before let go of that. All that's to come have none of it. Don't hold on to what's in between, and you'll wander fully at peace. For whom there is no eye-making, all throughout the body and mind, and who grieves not for what is not, is undefeated in the world. For whom there is, there is no this is mine, nor anything like that is theirs, not even finding softness, one does not grieve that I have nothing. So I'll leave it here see if some people have any reflections from your practice you'd like to share with the group or questions about the talk tonight. And there will be time for some questions and discussion tomorrow after the guidance set. We can take 10 minutes or so if there are any thoughts. Yeah.
1: yeah in
0: anyway. how how that <laughs> yeah. the, the the idea is to create a mental habit so that it happens naturally and, and mostly effortlessly that the mind it's like with the act of perception is the, the mind's engagement by naming it or noting it and um, the, the thing about the technique generally is it's always, you know, we're always going to be a moment behind, you know, because the, the perception and the noting is, uh, is following the act of contact. There's contact and noting, contact and noting, contact and noting. And yes, you can note noting. You can note anything. And uh, you can note doubt about the noting. You know, and any neurotic tendencies that arise can be noted. And the idea is not uh, not to believe the doubt that arises when things get neurotic; just recognize it. And you know, remember that the technique is less important than the spirit of the practice. The spirit of the practice is the continuity of mindfulness. That the mind is clearly aware that this is being known. This is being known. And the noting technique is a skillful means that can support that. I would never suggest to people to note at all costs. And I think these days there are very few teachers who teach that way anymore, you know, to note it all, at all costs. But I also feel like some people have dismissed noting. As never useful, and I don't think that that doesn't seem right to me. I think most people, there are times when noting is useful, and it's definitely useful out in life. A few notes here and there can really stabilize our attention. You know, when we're caught up, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, being in a fit, to just have a quiet voice in the mind, note that, you know, oh, being in a fit is like this. And there's different ways, like, I like that style of noting, is like this, you know, blank is like this, or blank is being known. I really like adding is being known to it. Now, when you have a longer phrase like that, the noting, it shouldn't be so continuous, you know, it's more sporadic, strategic noting to clarify or to balance the attention. But when we have uh, the time, like retreat time, it's nice to see if we can build a head of steam, and to do that in a way that isn't neurotic. And uh, you know, one—it's always tricky, but I'll go ahead and say it: just kind of hold it in the right spirit. It's like it—it it always feels natural to let the steam out. You know, things are getting a little intense in the meditation hall. I'll go take a walk. I'll go have a cup of tea I'll go do you know whatever I'll go do my yogi job but it's also good at times to use that pressure that builds and keep turning the mind toward it just keep being mindful of what it is and if there's pressure building then be mindful of the pressure building because there's a kind of an exponential function, you know, as things get more intense, it's easier to be mindful. And we can develop a lot of momentum in the practice. But as soon as things get intense, if we go looking for a way to release that tension, it's like we stay in a more normal state of consciousness for longer periods of time. Now, there are a lot of people who do, who kind of get out of balance in practice. And so it's easy for us to see that and realize, oh gosh, I don't want to do that. But we forget, we get out of balance not doing practice, too, all the time. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of ways I've gotten out of balance for all sort of silly reasons. You know, So why not experiment in practice, even if sometimes I get a little off in doing that? And people, we shouldn't be afraid. Life is a risky business. And you know, we should be willing to take some risks. Meditation isn't risk free, but it's you know, it's definitely not as risky as not doing meditation practice. But it's not risk free. I mean we can get into weird little sub eddies, you know, and eventually if we're lucky a teacher will come and or friend will come and say, Hey, you know, you're you're getting weird. <laughs> 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 you know, do some loving kindness practice or Let's go play frisbee or something. <laughs> Other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Jenna.
1: My question is about uh, the relationship between concentration practice and mindfulness practice. And the reason I'm asking that is I feel like when I'm on retreat, I know I, I can see the difference between my mind on retreat, which feels capable of mindfulness practice. And my mind in everyday life, which is usually just, uh, you know, like um, I don't want to do mindfulness practice in my everyday life because there's just so much confusion and so much moment of annihilation, that it's like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, so I just focus on doing concentration practice. But then when I come on retreat, I'm like, oh, geez, like there's no, <laughs> so <new follow-up." laughs> involved here, it's a little overwhelming. So I feel like there'd be like so I am out of balance, and I'm asking sort of like how in a daily
0: like practice situation they should approach that. Yeah, I just turn it around. I would do uh, mindfulness practice in daily life and at home when you're sitting, as messy and painful as it is, and do concentration practice when you're on retreat. You know because. Retreat practice is really ideal for concentration. And the the sort of depth that you get on retreat, you know, by using a more systematic technique and really, you know, like you know, sometimes when I were would go on a nine day retreat back in the nineties, you know, I just wouldn't leave the meditation hall. I'd do my walking practice right next to my cushion and I just keep things really focused to build up that pressure. And then it really changed my daily practice. You know, when I go back out into the world, it would change. So I think it's uh, mindfulness practice is more suited for being out in the world. And it is unpleasant, but it's actually pleasant to know that it's unpleasant. It's good to know that it's unpleasant, like to know that your mind is crazy. It's really good to know that, even though it's unpleasant. But you'll feel like you can ask yourself just to prompt this, like, but isn't it good to know that it's crazy now? I mean, isn't that good to know? How can I take care of you? What can I do? <laughs> time for one more comment or question, there is anything. Yes, Alex. Just for about control mode and
1: practice, I'm not taking file in I feel for me it's been very helpful on entertaining patterns and patterns Break out of a facial cutters. And um, recently, I was, my energy was really low about doing my own medicine all the all kinds of things. And I noticed that I was in the fairy before David. I was like, oh, look how little food i mean, And it was that woman I was like, oh, hello, he didn't order talk that was very disappointing. What is this? And uh, I'm taking a lot from like vegetables to the <laughs> end of my history. And that was really amazing to see that. Was there when I was like I'm um, all feeling
0: and, and, and that was just so lovely to see that. Yeah. Yeah, one way or another we need that reflective quality happening. It's really uh, the result of space in the mind. You know, the space to see what's going on. And the verbal or the mental noting rather It just operates in that space. You know, it comes out of that space. It's like the voice of intuition or voice of mindfulness that knows it's like this. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. So maybe we'll leave it here and just take a few seconds, let go of the words.